Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast of a Coffee. Today, my guest is Dinesh Thakur. Dinesh trained as a chemical engineer before becoming a whistleblower against the pharmaceutical company Ranbaxy. While working at Ranbaxy, he witnessed extensive data fraud and reported this wrongdoing. His actions led Ranbaxy to plead guilty in an American court in 2013 to violating US law. The company paid 500 million dollars as penalty as part of its guilty plea. For his whistleblowing efforts, he received the Joe A Callaway Award for Civic Courage and ACFE Cliff Robertson Sentinel Award. Since 2014, Dinesh has advocated reforming India's outdated drugs and cosmetics act from 1940. He founded an advocacy group called Citizens for Affordable, Safe and Effective Medicine (CASEM) to campaign for these reforms. Dinesh also established the Thakur Family Foundation, a philanthropic organization that funds public health research and health journalism in India. He serves as the foundation's president. In this episode, I talk to Dinesh about the work of YK Hamid and Sipla how india became the generic drug manufacturing capital of the world and the pros and cons of it we also talk about the ranbaxy case and a few other important cases which exposed the shady side of big pharma companies so stay tuned for the episode uh, do show your support to the show by subscribing on spotify or wherever you get your podcast and buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com/shortcastovercoffee that is buymeacoffee.com/shortcastovercoffee let's now get into the conversation with dinesh um hi dinesh welcome to the podcast you all thank you for having me yeah uh, i have a little story to say about how i came across uh, uh, your work um and and you uh, i had i did this wonderful episode with murli neelkanthan ex global general counsel sipla uh, yeah. and um, he he's told me about your book and uh, uh, i was made aware of it and then uh, the whole you know fire in the blood uh, documentary about yk hamid uh, and yeah. then you know it was all a rabbit hole where i got to know of uh, uh, you know the truth bill and so on and so forth um, so uh, i decided that you know i need to talk to you and get to know more about your work uh, so here we are so thank you so much um yeah yeah um i mean i k- kind of regret that i was not aware of the documentary fire in the blood earlier uh, but uh, remarkable remarkable work that yk hamid and sipla did uh, in in africa uh, so let's first start with uh, sipla you know it has it's quite the legacy company you know started in 1935 uh, gained a lot of prominence uh, you know when it started to make low cost generic versions of p- patented drugs um it also got a lot of backlash uh because you know it was violating a lot of policies uh but then it continued and i think yk hamid is quite the hero in africa uh you know looking back what has been sipla's uh major contribution uh to the world and uh, how has it made such a big difference so um i think that you know nothing to take away from hamid and sipla's contribution right so I think that Sipla and Hamid were at the right place at the right time to be able to capitalize on this growing demand for affordable 
antiretrovirals. Uh, that's certainly one side of the story. And, you know, um, Dylan Mongray's, uh, you know, documentary, Find the Blood, actually does a lot of justice to what really happened on that side. The story that is not actually told enough is about how Pepfar came about, right? The money for purchasing ARVs essentially was uh, allocated by the Bush administration through a program called Pepfar. Uh, and and in the story that is, you know, seldom, I mean, not so much told, uh, you know, uh, in common folklore compared to, you know, uh, Dr. Hamid and Cyprus contribution is what people like Bill Haddad and what they did, you know, to move the needle. Because remember, in those days, the companies that actually held the patent to these, you know, life-saving drugs were big pharma companies. And they were selling these medicines for an ungodly amount of money, right? Which clearly even patients in the United States can afford. Forget about, you know, people living in Africa. Um, you know, AIDS epidemic was its peak. People in, you know, cities like Philadelphia and New York, um, you know, who, who were afflicted with this, with this disease, they didn't have the means to buy medicine, you know, and the big pharma basically said, tough luck, you know, that's how it is going to be. If you want to survive, you'll, you'll end up paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to us. I think that, that you know, Sipla and Hamid um, clearly were at the right place at the right time. And one of the challenges that I think that we see within the Indian industry is the people who are, quote unquote, promoters of pharma companies in India, right? They don't have background either in chemistry or biology. Very few of them do. A lot of these are people from family wealth, who set up these, you know, uh, manufacturing facilities. Hamid was a, you know, uh, Cambridge-educated um, chemist, right? So he understood what was going on here. And I think that he was able to capitalize on what was happening. And so there were two sides to the story. One was the capability and the capacity of an Indian company to make this drug, which is very well captured in, in Dylan's movie, Fire in the Blood. The second part of it, which hopefully someday somebody will make a movie, is basically around how, you know, dogged activists like Bill basically persuaded the Bush administration to set aside a significant amount of money to buy these medicines, right? So I think that that's the other part of the story, which is also which also needs to be told, because without that far, this wouldn't have happened. A lot of money, US taxpayer money was spent, you know, sort of buying these medicines and distributing these medicines from India. But be that as it may, I think that what it did was it created this, this, this notion of the fact that you would you were able to create, you were able to supply medicines, life-saving medicines, a fraction of a cost, right? But if you if you go through and read the history of what really happened at that point in time. These pharma companies, which basically were beaten into a corner, right? And rather than charging hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, for, for you know, life-saving medications for HIV patients, they were willing to give up that, that patent, you know, sort of a protection outside of the United States. But they also knew that once you open that door, very little could have prevented those medicines from making their way back into it in, in, in the United States, right? So the way that they prevented that was basically said, you know what, if you were to sell, you know, if, if the same companies were to sell the medicines in the United States, they need to have a approval from the US FDA. 
to the extent that they also said that if U.S. taxpayer money was being used to buy these medicines, you needed an approval from the U.S. FDA in order for, for the U.S. taxpayers through the USAID program, which is which is the, the PEPFAR sort of operational arm. It, before it spent money, U.S. taxpayer money, they needed to have an approval from the, from the U.S. FDA because they figured that it at least will throw a wrench into the works because how many Indian companies will actually get an approval from the, from the U.S. FDA, right? We'll throw them back. Even if you could push them back a year, that's one year's worth of full profits for us to make, right? But they did not count on the ingenuity of Indian chemists who were able to sort of develop this capacity very, very quickly, you know, and, and, and reverse engineer a lot of these medicines, which essentially became, you know, the story of the fire and the blood, right? So I think that's the story that we always kind of look back and, and, and think about the contribution of, of Indian generic pharma industry to, uh, you know, the world of medicine as to what we were able to do. Now, that opened the gates because I think that what it told the Indian industry was, look, there was a market. Yes, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be you know, selling your drugs for what big pharma sold, right? But you could still make a decent profit, right? Even if you sold at $100, uh, sorry, a dollar a day for the pill, right? In those days, imagine a dollar was what, 17, 18 rupees? I mean, it's not like, you know, it's 83 or 84 right now. At 17, 18 rupees, you know, a day, you could still make a profit if you did it properly, right? And so they said, fine, you know, we will go ahead and do that, you know, and, and, and we'll still make a decent amount of money. And I think that a lot of so, uh, sort of kudos goes to, you know, the people in Pepfar and Biladad and, and those guys who negotiated and said, like, you need to be in business. This model will only work if you guys make money, if you become profitable, right? If you sustain yourself, right? To be able to do that. That's how the, the generic industry came about. And I think that what people learn from what Cipla did, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, look, if Cipla can do it, what is stopping us from doing it, right? So a lot of these Indian generic pharma industries that was basically supplied to the local market, it opened their eyes to the fact that there's a huge market outside of India that they could cater to, right? So that basically created this, this whole notion of India supplying generic medicines to the, to the world. So that's how it got started. Yeah, Cipla clearly played a key role in establishing India as the pharmacy of the developing world, so to speak. Um, you mentioned about reverse engineering, and uh, and I also heard you mention, uh, not in this particular podcast, but elsewhere, that no major drug has been discovered in India. Uh, and uh, I was looking at the list of billionaires of who own Indian pharma companies. And uh, this is a statistic from 2021. And I see that India has 15 pharma billionaires in the top 100. Uh, and their net worth is over 85 billion. Um, and a lot of the times when the question is asked that why doesn't India invest a lot on R&D, the the answer is that India does not have the, the amount of capital to invest. Uh, but, but the statistics say otherwise, you know, lots of billionaires in the top 100. So where do you think the gap is? Why hasn't India been able to sort of pioneer drug discovery research? So there are, there are two aspects to this, right? How do you have, how do you have an ecosystem that actually does innovation? Now, let's take take a step behind. Let's take a step back, right? And, and, and ask about innovation more broadly, not just in the pharmaceutical space. And we'll, narrow, we'll zoom in on the, on the pharmaceutical space in a bit. Other than the pharmaceutical industry, which earns a lot of foreign exchange revenue for us in India, 
The other big industry that we have that earns a lot of foreign, foreign revenue is IT services, right? Now, can you tell me how many you know, innovative IT services programs have we developed, has India developed and, and actually given to the world? Very few. I think, I mean, most of them have been the Indian version of a Walmart or uh, an Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the question here is that that why is innovation not a feature of our economy? That's a question that needs to be asked, right? Because in order for you to develop drugs, two things have to happen. You have to have the skill, right? You have to have people who understand how to do drug discovery. Right? And what does drug discovery take? It takes people understanding of biology. It takes understanding of chemistry, right? And people who understand how to put those two things together, right? That's what drug discovery takes. So the first thing you need is qualified people who understand, who are good at biology and chemistry. That's one thing. The second thing, it needs capital, right? Remember, drug discovery is a long game. If you, if you know anything about, you know, developing new medicines, this is a process, you know, that is the failure is, is, is inherent in this, right? One in 10 projects actually make it to the market, one in 10, right? And each project requires a 10-year development cycle because even if you have a viable, you know, drug candidate, whether it's a biological or a chemical, the process of establishing, you know, its safety and efficacy in a clinic it's something that needs three to four years, right? This is the FDA approval process. You go through first establishing the dose, then the safety of that particular thing, then the efficacy of that in a large scale clinical trial. That takes many, many years. So in a process that that, that actually has 90% failure rate and takes 10 to 12 years to actually come to the market, imagine the kind of investment that you would need and the patience that you need to have to sustain that investment over the 10, 12 year period of time, right? Indian entrepreneurs, Indian big families who own, you know, Indian billionaires who own, you know, pharmaceutical companies, they just do not have the patience and the capacity to make such investments. They look for return on capital in 24 months. That's their threshold, right? So typically, if you if you look at the, 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 the list of billionaires that, 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 that you talked about here, right? The, the people who own large product companies, if you look at their investment thresholds, if you look at their annual reports, right? If you read the, the, the annual reports and the messages that they have in, in terms of where they see the companies going, their threshold for return on capital is 24 months. Well, you cannot do drug, drug discovery in 24 months. That's the first thing, right? The second thing is, do we really have the skills to be able to develop new drugs? Certainly, we have chemistry skills, right? Without chemistry skills, we would not have had the generic industry that we have in the country, right? But we do not have, we've never invested in proper biology. Now, I'm sure many of your um, listeners who have taken science in high school, they will, you know, if you, if you think back, how many times did you actually have a proper biology lab, right? You had a chemistry lab, you had salts that you were, you know, playing with. That, that you were asked to identify what was sodium chloride or potassium chloride. And if you add you know, certain you know, alkaline mixture to it, it turns blue or green, things of that nature. We certainly had chemistry, right? But did we really have proper molecular biology labs? Do we have prop, did we have proper microscopes? Did we have proper uh, you know, uh, books and teachers that actually taught us you know, how um, you know, organic you know, so, uh, uh, biochemistry actually works, right? 
How many of us actually do that? Or did yeah. that for the most? Yeah, that is so true because I talked to a few of my uh, friends who who chose biotechnology. You know, they did biotechnology in in for their undergrad, but most of them uh, after that just moved to the U.S. or chose IT jobs, or you know, they eventually went on to become JRF junior research fellows. But then uh, they say that you know, establishing a lab or like you said, you know, acquiring. Um, uh, equipments for their lab is is a very tedious process involves a lot of red tapeism and the pay is pretty abysmal to be honest so i think yeah so those are two factors if you think about why you know we've never been able to develop a innovation based pharmaceutical industry this is the reason why and and the challenge is this this right if even if you look at the united states most of basic innovation happens at the university level, right? Most of the basic innovation happens with the help of the National Science Foundation grants. If you look at the way that India actually, you know, uh, engenders, um, you know, innovation, we do it through what's called the Department of Science and Technology. Now, this is the, the this is the department that actually gives out grants to PhDs, you know, PhD students, you know, postdocs who work in in the universities. Last time I was in India, I actually went and spoke to a bunch of these people and said, okay, what is your biggest issue? You know, they don't even get paid on time. Forget about, you know, uh, access to proper lab facilities. I, I mean, access to journals, for example. You know, we're still a low and middle income country, right? Access to Elsevier journals is an expensive thing for, for us. As a country, we never think about, you know, buying a countrywide license and making it available to all our universities so that our students can actually look up you know, most up-to-date scientific literature. We just don't have access to that. I mean, these are fundamental things that, that we don't think about when we talk about, you know, how do you create a, a, an ecosystem that fosters, you know, building skills. Now, if you do not provide proper labs, if you do not provide, you know, proper, you know, I mean, basic things like paying people on time, if you don't pay postdocs on time, if you don't pay our PhD students on time, right, if you don't give them access to journals, how the hell are you going to expect them to innovate? And this is not a new problem. I mean, this is something that I'm, what I'm telling you is nothing new. This is something that's been known for a long period of time. And then even, you know, if you look at, at the kind of schemes the government runs, right, and you apply for go talk to somebody who's gotten a DST grant, right, and, and, and ask them, okay, can you tell us what the grant process looks like? Well, the grant process is administered not by people who understand how innovation works. It's administered by some babu, some buyer's guy who's sitting in, in the Ministry of Science and Technology. Now, if you, if you apply for a grant, the first thing he'll ask you is, what collateral are you going to provide to me in order for me to give you a 50 lakh grant? Now, tell me, what collateral would a, would, would a startup entrepreneur provide in order to get a 50 lakh grant to set up a lab? Yeah, he wouldn't have much. And this is the reason why 80% of, of the national you know, grants from DST go to people like Biocon, to Sun Pharma, because they're able to provide those collaterals. The question is, do they really need money from the government to be able to do this kind of work? Not really, yeah. Right? So these are some of the questions that I think that we don't talk about enough to try and understand why we fail so miserably when it comes to innovation, right? I'm not talking about uh, just pharmaceuticals. I'm talking about a startup structure, even within uh, information technology, right? Again, 
tell me what innovation have we produced, you know, for a country of 1.4 billion people that we can point out and say, this is unique to us. We made this happen. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking of Zeroda, which is a knockoff of uh, Robin Hood, Flipkart, Walmart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pinnacle, is which is something that, that, that we, we say, it's a, it's a knockoff of, of Oracle and, 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 and SAP. Right. right. My point is different. My point is that, that unless you change the way that, that, that we encourage the ecosystem, right, and empower young people to be able to think in ways that, that uh, gives them the, the safety net to take the risks, right, innovation will not flourish in the country, right? You get a uh, you know young kid, 20, 25-year-old kid applying for a grant to do to, to innovation in software. And the first thing that person is asked is, what collateral do you provide? What collateral do you think they have? Laptops? Yeah. So true. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I was actually going through the list of uh, billionaires, uh, like I was mentioning earlier. And it was fascinating, fascinating that only the Indian billionaires had this thing that XYZ and family um, and so on. I think the the case was true for Jindal and and so on and so forth. I think, yeah, yeah, only Nikhil Kamath, maybe Nikhil Kamath and a few others were sort of self-made billionaires. And I sometimes wonder why that is like, do we as a culture, I, I don't know if it's a culture problem or an attitude problem where we always want the wealth to stay in the family, uh, not much of philanthropy going around. I, I, I don't know whether that's true, though, because I think that if you if you do look look at, for example, Azim Premji and Nilakani Foundation, right, both of them, you know, do a lot of work, right? But the need in the country is so huge that, that you know, even, you know, you know, people with deep pockets like Premji and Nilakani, you know, even if they, you know, invest as much as they do, they are able, they're able to, to, to address this. I think what, if I understand correctly, if you look at both Nilakani and, and, and Premji, their focus is more on solving social problems. Mm-hmm. Because need is so huge, right? right? They are not looking necessarily at innovation front, right? They are addressing basic issues of, of water, food, shelter, right? Education, you know, those, I mean, those are systemic problems for us even after... It doesn't matter if we say we are celebrating 75 years of independence, Amritkar, what nonsense. But fact is that, you know, 800 million people still require, uh, you know, uh, 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 five kilograms of ration at the end of the day. I mean, if, if, if that is the if, if that is what we call Azadi Kamrit Mahatsa, I don't know what to say. Hmm. Yeah, that is so true. I think uh, we, we also have to uh, mention uh, the names of people who have signed the giving pledge. I think, you know, the Nilekani Foundation, uh, Nikhil Kamath and, and and so many people, Azim Premji comes to mind. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but like you said, they are fo- solving a lot more social problems or fundamental problems that that need attention at this time, and that also makes sense. Um, yes, right. But but the the point I'm trying to say uh, is 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 again, like it's up to the government to create this ecosystem, right? What happens in the United States is not that private philanthropy funds this. Right. Once you have an idea that is proven in the lab at the university level, is where you know venture capital, private equity, these guys come in and license it out, and then invest in it and developing it. Right. But the basic research of, of what really happens is largely funded by you know NIH. Right. 
our we don't have anything equivalent to NIH. Even if we have something equivalent, you know, even a small version of that, we administer it so poorly that the people who really need that don't get it. Instead, what happens is that the, the big guys, they end up walking away with the lion's share of the grants that the government gives, and they're the last people who really need that. Yeah, that is that is so true. Um, yeah, you you mentioned about uh, regulations and your book, The Truth Bill, discusses about uh, the lack of regulations in India. Um, and I came across several articles of you know similar instances uh, uh, that happened in the U.S. Uh, I mean, one of one of the examples that strikes me is Biogen in in September twenty twenty two. There was a settlement of nine hundred million. Uh, with due to the allegations that it uh, Biogen paid kickbacks to doctors to induce them to prescribe its uh, multiple scler sclerosis drugs, and then there was another instance of Ellie Lilly, where uh, a former HR lead uh, filed a lawsuit uh, reporting, you know, manufacturing problems and so on, not complying with FDA procedures. Um, we see these examples in the U.S., and I think I'm just uh, thinking back at my episode with Murli Nilakantan, um, who mentioned that you know, Indian quality control is super bad. And then there is a little more honor system and a lot more control in the US. Uh, and you hear these cases in the US as well. Uh, how do you compare the quality control or such issues between India and so-called developed country like the US? So I, I mean, look, to be very honest, I can only speak, you know, as by not Knowledge is directly related to medicines, right? I think that the quality issue is much broader, much, much broader. Right? So we have to, you know, say that, and I'm not qualified to talk about, you know, uh, product quality or service quality in, 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 a, in the broader industry context, because I think that there's more to it than, than pharmaceutical uh, 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 product quality. But the fact remains is that, you know, after 75 years, the only example that, that we as Indians can point to and say that this is a successful story in manufacturing for us as a country is pharmaceuticals. Tell me which other, you know, what, what other, you know, product have we created to it for export? Definitely not automobiles. Yeah, nothing else. Maybe software, but that too, low quality uh, stuff. Yeah. Software is mostly sold as a service. Service, yeah, yeah, that's right? true, yeah. It's software as a service, right? Because even, even if this product is bundled along with support infrastructure for service, but like a hard product, we don't have any, right? So the, because of that, I think that our political class is so afraid of even, in, even sort of acknowledging that there's a problem with this industry. Because, because it's think, a success story? Because it's the only success story. If, if, for example, if you, well, I'll give a simple example, right? Last year, around this time, um, um, at this point in time, uh, in October, in a small country in West Africa, um, you know, in, 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 in a country called Gambia, 66 children died after consuming cough syrup that was made in India. And when the Gambian authorities actually, you know, when the World Health Organization issued a medical corps alert, our initial reaction was, how dare you even point a finger to us? 
It is you who should have tested the product before you gave it to your children. This was an official response of the government of India to the World Health Organization, the Gambia, saying, you are at fault here. You didn't test the product before you gave it to your children and your children died. So that's your problem, not, not ours. This is the kind of knee-jerk reaction. Now, tell me what product that you buy, that you use, after paying good money for it, that you test it yourselves before using it. Nothing. You just trust the brand. You just trust the manufacturing process and quality control. The point yeah. is that the hubris that comes with that, right, tells you that they are so prickly about anybody pointing a finger at this industry. I mean, look, that was the initial reaction over a period of time. The, the Parliamentary Standing Committee in Gambia, they basically dispelled this nonsense. They, they held, a, you know, they, they, they conducted a detailed inquiry, looked at autopsies, um, looked at, you know, sent the, 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 the sample to labs in Switzerland, um, you know, and in Ghana, and got it tested and proved that this was a product, you know, that, that actually had contaminant. My point is not that. You know, they shut up after a while, right? Because, you know, that initial hubris about how dare you even question us vanished when confronted with data. My point here is that, that, that because we see that as our only sort of example, you know, whatever, to, to, to be able to say, hey, look, you know, this is what we have. Anybody who points a finger at them, our reaction is that how dare you? How dare you say that we don't, you know, our products are not good? How dare you point out to us that, 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 that we don't produce good products? Now, that does not engender confidence in building quality. Look, even in the best manufacturing facilities in Europe and the United States, there are problems. Have you heard of this infant formula issue that we had in the United States last year? So Abbott you know, is the largest supplier of infant formula in the United States. During the peak of COVID, they found that the manufacturing facility up in Illinois had contamination. And they had a couple of baby deaths. It was a huge issue, blew up. There was a shortage of, of baby formula to the extent that the president of the country actually intervened, you know, and, 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 and lifted up import ban to import uh, infant formula from, from Germany, from, from, from Europe. We never do that, right? The point I'm trying to make here is that Abbott would have said, how dare you say, you know, how do you say that, that our product caused this? Is this the way to address quality-related issues? There are problems. When you make a product, doesn't matter if you make a mechanical product, a drug product, a software product, you will have bugs. The way that you address that is acknowledge the fact that, yes, we made a mistake, We'll figure out why it happened. We'll institute procedures to make sure it never happens again. Right? It took about eight months to clean up. There's a huge investigative reporting on that. They got penalized by the US FDA. And in the meantime, they found out that the FDA did not have enough inspectors to inspect those kind of facilities that were producing, you know, infant formula. So the government gave them enough resources to say, look, we don't want this kind of situation to happen again you know, in, in our country. That's the way to solve problems and inspire confidence in their product. Not by you know, you know, basically sort of threatening people who say, you know, your product causes harm. 
right? That is our reaction. Yeah, I mean, another example that comes to mind is the Chicago Tylenol murders, I think, 1980s. Right. Right. Uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson just jumped in, you know, did some corporate res responsibility and uh, they made sure that they came up with tamper-proof seals. And then we all know, you know, it, it has started to, it became the norm after that. So, yeah, uh, lots of shiny examples like that. Exactly. Uh, and so, you, you mean... My point is, is very simple. My point is that you have to have a mindset, right? You, you have to have a mindset for quality to say, look, you need to be able to sort of address these issues in the way they ought to be addressed. No process is 100% perfect. It doesn't matter what, what, you know, what part you're creating. There will be problems. And the way to address that, to inspire confidence, to build loyalty among your customers, Right? That's what we have to focus on. And the problem that we have is that as a industry in India, we play cost, low cost game, right? Our entire premise of our industry is we will sell you the cheapest product. And, and, and I'm not giving a buy to the uh, US, you know, purchases here. The pharmacy benefit managers and insurance companies that pay for medicines in the United States are largely to blame for that. Because they're the one who kind of drive them like to the to, 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 to the race to the bottom, right? They're the ones who actually. But the point here is that, that if if you play that game, right, and you hit the bottom and start scraping, where do you go after that? And unfortunately, that's a game that we are playing as a country, as an industry right now. Hmm. We are playing the game of race to the bottom, right? without understanding the long-term consequences. And again, I come back to the same notion, which is that if your management's you know, time horizon for return on capital is 24 months, right? You're only worried about the next two quarters of what you're going to respond to the market, to the street. You're not looking at building a brand. You're not looking at building a brand for Johnson & Johnson, what it did with Tylenol back in you know, 50 years ago, right? What it did in terms of recalling every product. I mean, it had people rummaging through people's trash to try and find bottles of Tylenol at that point in time. That's how you build a you know, brand. Because you're not focused on the next two quarters because you, they went out and said, look, we're going to take a massive hit in the next two quarters because of this product recall that we're making right now. Right? But our, our eyes are not on the next two quarters, but we want to come back to you with a product that you trust. Right? That is what is missing. Our investment horizon is the next two quarters. We want to be able to tell the street that we've made our numbers. And if you were, if that is priority for you, then I don't know if there's anything else to say. Yeah, yeah, expecting quick turnaround. Uh, yeah. yeah, you rightly pointed out about the, the death of children in Gambia. Uh, I think even in India, there was uh, there were a few deaths because of uh, diethylene glycol, right? The same right. Uh, yeah. same issue that happened in Gambia. And uh, uh, funnily enough, I I noticed that only very few uh, very few media outlets actually covered this news. You know, I saw News Laundry, The Wire, Hindu, and The Guardian. And none of the other so-called mainstream media covered this news. I mean, which which also fascinates me on on how much influence the um, the powerful. Yeah, has. so so that's a, that's a you know that's another pet peeve of mine, which is that the 
the reporting, the journalism piece, right? I think that when we think about um, reporting for health, I think that, you know, at least during the COVID, we've seen more people interested in reporting about health issues. But in India, largely, the only time you hear about health reporting when there's a tragedy. Either there's a tragedy of some proportion, some kind, children dying because of encephalitis in UP or, you know, Zika infects a whole bunch of people in Kerala, or the pharmaceutical companies and hospitals actually report their quarterly earnings. That's a regular feature of our health reporting. Or when the Ministry of Health, every year, they keep, they keep, they put out their, their annual homage to uh, the, the sustainable goals, right? That they'll eradicate malaria in the next 10 years or eradicate leprosy in this many years, or, you know, we have no child, no issue of child stenting, you know, we're great in nutrition. I mean, the kind of nonsense that the ministry puts out, that is the extent of our reporting in health. At least during the COVID, I think what happened was, you know, people paid attention to actual reporting when it comes to health. But the point I'm trying to, to say to you is it's unfortunate because our journalism is limited to, you know, sensational stuff when children die, right? I mean, when the, the last situation happened in Jammu where 11 children, 12 children died, right? Uh, it was, again, due to diethylene glycol. Right, the same contaminant that killed children in, in, in Gambia. But very little in the way of national reporting, yes. You know, regionally that was reported, covered, but very little in the way of national outreach. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, interesting segue now that we are talking about uh, contaminants. A uh, bit of a digress, but uh, uh, I, I noticed that in your book, you, you talk quite a bit about traditional medicine and Ayurveda and you know, how Ayurvedic so-called medicines have uh, a lot of contaminants in them and they cause uh, a lot of deaths. Um, you know, I have had trouble making people understand that uh, Ayurveda is not, you know, scientific medicine. Maybe it was appropriate for its time, but I think in modern day and age, we need uh, modern medicine, which is evidence-based. And, um, you know, you also spoke about, you know, efficacy of medicine, right? I mean, I was having a, a conversation with uh, a science communicator called Pranav Radhakrishnan. And in the middle of the conversation, I noticed that, you know, nobody really asks for the efficacy of an Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, uh, nobody wants to know that number. Uh, what have been some of your findings uh, through your investigative journalism uh, days, so to speak, about uh the, the side effects or ill effects of Ayurveda. Uh, it, it, actually, Pranav and Abhi, they do a lot more work in the space than I do, right? So Pranav, purely from a science communication point of view, and Abhi, you know, because of his, you know, clinical background and the kind of patients that he sees, he's a pathologist, right? So he sees people with acute liver injury, people who consume this kind of nonsense that goes under the guise of Ayurveda, and it clinically demonstrates and documents, you know, how badly people get affected by by consuming what they call, quote unquote, safe, natural, you know, medicine, right? The sad part is, I think, you know, there, there are two issues in my mind. Now, I, I, you know, we can talk about why, you know, these, these so-called concoctions are bad, why they're laced with heavy metals, narcinic, how majority of that is stupid alcohol and that basically, you know, affects people's liver and stuff like that. But we have a much bigger problem, right? The, the, which, which I don't think that we understand why that is. 
the question we have to ask ourselves is why do people gravitate toward this nonsense? Right? Why is it that, that you know, even well-meaning people, I'm not talking about people who live in villages, right? I can understand that somebody who's not educated or doesn't understand modern medicine, going to a quack and basically saying, hey, you know what, give me something based on Ayurveda. I'm talking about, quote-unquote, educated people, middle class, right? Why do they gravitate toward this nonsense, right? Half the time they say, oh, I'm taking so-and-so Ayurvedic medicine as well, in addition to taking my regular modern medicine. Why do they say that, right? You have, this is where I think, we, I think we need to understand. The reason is because if you look at the, the way that we practice medicine in India, right, our medical practitioners in India, right, because of the education system that we have, they just do not have the ability to, to, to communicate with the patient with empathy. The sheer number of, of patients they see, right, you're going to see a, you know, a consultant, the person, you go and sit there, he shoots or she shoots a bunch of questions at you, asking you about your health and whatnot, takes your vitals and writes a prescription and gives it to you. And next, right? As against that, if you go to one of these people who are who supposedly like the BAMS, BHMS people, right? They spend an extraordinary amount of time sitting with you, trying to understand what is your constitution? What do you do? What is your family history? A lot of what patients need is basically some level of empathy. And the practice of modern medicine, for whatever reason, you know, we don't train enough doctors, number one, because, you know, this, this you know, getting into the, you know, uh, more, uh, uh, the medical school through entrance examinations, a big how happens every year, right? We try and make it so that, oh, you know, such a big deal that you get through, medic, you know, uh, a medical entrance examination. We don't train enough doctors. For a country of our size, we should have 10 times the number of doctors in the country. Why don't we have enough you know, uh, institutions that actually train that. Is it a question of capacity? Don't Are you saying that we don't have enough people to train this? That's absolute nonsense, right? We, that's never been a priority for us because we want to create shortage. We want to create this perception that this is a very highly valued, highly trained resource that you go to. They can command a lot of money to try and treat, treat you. The, the side effect of that is they just don't have the time to be able to spend with you as a patient. Nine out of 10 times, right? When the doctor actually sits down with the patient, spends 20 minutes, you'll realize that the patient needs more to, that somebody to listen to, to try and figure out what is wrong, rather than getting a list of 15 different medications. Our practice of medicine is what today? Diagnostics, right? The moment you go to a doctor, they'll say, get your blood work done, get your CT done, get your MRI done, and come back. And based on that, I'll write a you know, page full of medicines for you. That is, that is our practice of medicine today. Are you surprised that these people don't, you know, don't, don't have the confidence in what they're doing? If they go to the guy who's a BHMS or a BAMS, that guy's going to sit down and say, okay, tell me your family history, tell me your history, tell me when do you get up, what do you do first thing in the morning, when do you go to bed, you know, do you sleep properly, which, you know, a lot of times it's about a conversation. And the skill of clinical medicine is gone. Our doctors don't understand clinical medicine. They understand diagnostic medicine. And then we complain, oh, why do these people go and, 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 and you know, uh, take these all kinds of concoction tinctures? They do because you don't listen to them. Listen to them. 
Yeah, it's remarkable how consistent uh, Pranav's answer and yours answer are. I mean, uh, he said the exact same thing. And and sometimes I wonder why that is. Like I think you rightly pointed out we don't have enough doctors and I feel like each doctor sees probably 100 patients a day which is uh, much less in the west. Uh, but but you know, I live in the US and I uh, I sometimes complain the fact that, you know, why does it take such a long time to even get an appointment with a doctor here in the US, uh, whereas I could just, you know, take an auto, go to someone and, uh, you know, just just tell them my problems. Um, what system are you a fan of, by the way? Like, do you do you like the Indian system where... You know? No, see, the thing is, I mean, these are two, two ends of the spectrum, right? right. I mean, for, for, for India... Right, which is a low and middle income country, aspiring for us to become a United States is a wrong thing to do. Mm. It's absolutely wrong. Thing, right? This country spends 18% of its GDP on, 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 on healthcare. Do you think we can afford that in India? 18% of our gross domestic product on medicine? We cannot, right? We're a poor country. We have to be aware of the situation that we live in, right? But that doesn't doesn't mean that we can't we cannot have a functional healthcare system. Look at Thailand. Thailand is the same in the same bucket as us as far as gross domestic product and per capita income, right? They provide much better care to their people compared to us. Much, much better care. Now the question is this, right? The question is when we had the ability to actually make a significant difference in, in the way that we provide primary and secondary care, right? Which is large part of our, 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 our care. Traditionally care, getting surgery is, is obviously a specialized skill. You need hospitals, operation theaters, specialists and stuff. I'm talking about primary and secondary care. What did we do? We chose the insurance-based model, right? We created Aishman Bharat and we created PMJ and we said, we will give you insurance cover of 5 lakh rupees right, for you to be able to use. What was the alternative on the other side? We could have taken the same money and said, we are going to fix our primary health center, the community health centers, and we're going to staff them with proper nurses and paramedics, even if the doctor goes there once, you know, once a week, right? But these are our priorities. For a country of our size and scale and, and where we are in the development scale, for us to superimpose an insurance-based model of care for us, it's a completely wrong prescription, right? We would have taken the same amount of money. We could have said that every primary and community health center that we have, right? We're going to make sure that it's properly equipped with diagnostics, has a nurse practitioner, BSc nursing available in two shifts, right? Eight-hour shifts, you know, during the day, a paramedic available for emergencies, right? And the doctor comes in once you know, a week so that the person can then monitor, you know, cases that need to be looked at carefully. If we spend the same amount of money doing that, we would have been able to provide so much better service. Who's benefiting today? The insurance companies are making money hand over fist. Is that what we want? Yeah, interesting thoughts. Uh... Yeah, clearly, clearly a broken system. Uh, yeah, you you go on to write in your book, uh, the truth pill about uh, you know some some data uh, with respect to medical representatives uh, promoting drugs by unethically offering gifts, cash in incentives, uh, and so on. Um, 
you know, I was I was having this thought about how best is to regulate this and how best is to bring some sort of a foolproof system. Uh, and, uh, you know, the answer that that I end up with is, you know, you just have to trust people because it's it's incredibly difficult to build a foolproof system. Uh, what have been your findings uh, along your journey about these unethical practices well, that happens? The unethical practices for marketing from pharmaceutical companies are not unique to India. It happens all over the world, right? Happens in this country. Happens yeah, we just spoke about Biogen, for instance, yeah. Exactly, right? Happens all the time. The point, the question here is that what is your framework? regulating that impact. That is the important question to ask. Because in the United States, there's something called the Sunshine Law that basically says that anything over a $25 payment from the pharmaceutical company to a doctor needs to be publicly reported. Right? If if I, as a a pharma rep, buy lunch to a doctor, right? Typical lunch, $15-$20, that's fine. But if I you know, buy a ticket for the doctor to go to a baseball game, right? Then I need to report that, right? That's what Sunshine Law is saying in this country. And then it's up to the, the, the patient to figure out how much of the prescript, the, the, the care that the doctor is providing is under the influence of, of the pharmaceutical company, right? That information is available. Now, if you, let's go back and look at India, right? We have a similar, you know, code of, of ethics that governs the conversation, the relationship between a doctor and a patient, a doctor and a pharmaceutical company. But that code of governance is completely voluntary. There are no teeth to enforce it. Now, the question that I have to ask then is that, why have the code if it's, un- if it's, if it's not, man- if you cannot enforce it? Why do you create this perception that there is some measure of a governance structure in place that you know provides oversight to this conversation between a pharma company and a doctor? Who are you trying to fool? And what is the point of creating a voluntary code? Right? So these are some basic questions that have to be asked, right? And what happens again is that the conversation gets took, you know, into public notice when there is some kind of mishap, some tragedy, some emergency, right? We all talk about how terrible things are, but how hospitals basically abuse patients. They won't return their bodies of their loved ones because, you know, you don't settle the bill or, you know, you, you, you don't, you know, you, you don't ask why is the doctor writing a, a prescription for a monoclonal antibody that costs 29,000 rupees per shot compared to I could have gotten a, a regular medicine that would have done pretty much the same thing for me, right? We don't, we talk about it usually when it happens to us. When something happens to me or one of my loved ones who basically gets, you know, you know affected by this, I get very angry about it. And I go on Twitter and I write a rant about it. And they get a lot of retweets and stuff like that. And then I forget. Right? I've done my thing. I've ranted. I've, you know, created this, this nonsense around it. Everybody says, yeah, it happened to me. Too. Oh, terrible, terrible thing, you know? Two days later, we all forget. Yeah. Is that how change comes? 
That is so true. I mean, yeah, this this also brings me to the topic of Central Drugs Standard Control Organization, CDS, uh, CEO. Um, you know, there's been a lot of reports that it's understaffed, underfunded, uh, it limits enforcing capacity and so on. And uh, uh, there are also numerous examples uh, of drugs banned and restriction restricted in country, uh, countries like the US and uh you know, the European Union, uh, which are freely available in India. Uh, what are, what are some of the, ex- yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah. What, what are some of the examples and, and why is it that uh, the, the CDSCO is, is so sort of incapable of, of regulating these things? Look, I think that there is enough, there are enough studies that talk about the competence of the CDSCO and the capacity of the CDSCO. Um, I'm their biggest critic. I can, I always kind of throw stuff at them. I don't envy them. I think that they have a tremendous job ahead of them. And I know that they're, they're not staffed adequately. I know that, that you know, they, uh, they need to upskill themselves significantly to, to try and, you know, do justice to the, to the requirement that they have. No two ways about it, right? But at this point in time, I'm actually looking at some very simple things, right? Whatever the limitation you have, whatever function that you're discharging on behalf of people of the country, why don't you be transparent about it? It doesn't take more people for you to be transparent about your actions, does it? Does it? Right? Yeah, I mean, you only, your, your inspectorate staff has um, capacity to inspect 25% of the manufacturing facilities in given, right? You're not staffed at it, given. But those 25 people who actually do inspections and produce inspection reports, what stops you from making them public? Right? I mean, the US FDA sends inspectors from Baltimore. They go to India, they do an inspection, they come back, within 30 days, their inspection report is available on the US FDA website. Right? This is a different country that's actually inspecting your facility in 30 days, actually telling you, this is what we found, this is where the, the concerns are, this is what we told the management, this is what they said that they'll do to fix. What is stopping the Indian regulator from doing that? Right? They, I understand that you don't have enough people. I do understand that you don't have enough capacity. But at least the capacity you have, right? Why don't you make it transparent? Why is the inspection report a state secret? Right? So there are the, the, the issue is, is, is this, right? I think that, you know, like everything else in the country, the CDSCO is run, you know, with, 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 run by bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy is never invested in actually disclosing anything because God forbid some layperson question their intent and their, their decisions. I mean, how dare they, right? The other issue is also the federal structure of the country, right? If you think about how our regulatory structure came about when India became a union, the money that states derive from licensing or manufacturing facilities, states said, look, we want that money. Right? So if there's a manufacturing facility in the state of Maharashtra, the state of Maharashtra derives revenue from the, from the licensure, licensure of that. Right? 
Same situation goes for Creative Himachal Pradesh, a large manufacturing base there. And so they derive licensing revenue from that. The problem with that is that, that, that you know, if the guy in Karnataka, the drug regulator in Karnataka, finds a problem with something that's manufactured in Himachal, there is nothing that person can do. Other than maybe writing a nice letter to the, the, the drug, the, the, you know, the regulatory Himachal saying, Hey, look, you know, we found this medicine, we tested it in our, in our lab, and we found it completely like chalk powder. And your factory is making this, it's making people sick. And the guy who's sitting in Imachal is going to get the letter and crumple it and throw it in the basket because, God forbid, he wants to, you know, he's going to jeopardize the money he's making out of the licensing of it. So we have systemic problems that we got to fix, right? India is one market. It doesn't take more than a week for a drug manufactured in Himachal to make it to Mizora, right? And we have to fix this. And it can only be fixed when the parliament gets its shit together and actually passes a proper law. But in the meantime, what is stopping the CDSCO from being transparent about what it is doing? Yeah, that's that's quite surprising why they wouldn't make whatever little they do public. Uh, it just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. Um, yeah, I, I want to touch upon uh, clinical trials uh, conducted in India. Uh, they don't seem to offer uh, protection for vulnerable subjects. Uh, and uh, sometimes I feel like, you know, in, in a developing nation, uh, the value for life is much less than the developed world. Uh, why is that? Why is there nobody to question the loss of life due to, uh, you know, clinical trial malpractices? And, uh, you know, th this also stemmed from one of my other discussions with a rural reporter and who reported about, you know, farmer suicides in Vidarbha and, you know, the, the severe mental health crisis in Vidarbha. Nobody talks about it. Uh, it's all the celebrities who get the limelight uh, who talk about mental health. So um, uh, clinical trials, uh, what has gone wrong? What is going wrong? Uh, and how can we improve it? Look, we just don't have competence to do clinical studies in India. Again, it goes back to the, the first question you asked is, why didn't we develop you know, a drug of our own? Because you just don't know how, right? How do you develop competence in doing clinical studies? By, by actually going through the process, right? You go to a big hospital, a government hospital, right? And say, we want to do a clinical study. There are certain things, structural things that have to happen, right? Now, these have developed in, in some good clinical uh, public hospitals in India because uh, US companies and European companies actually do studies there. So they've learned how to do the stuff, right? Um, you have to have what is called an ethics committee, right? Even, even before you enroll people into a, a study of this nature, you have to get approval from the hospital's ethics committee to say, this is the right way to go about doing that. If you go back and look at about 10, 12 years ago, there was a uh, Merck did this, this study with young females, like babies, and they were using this, this they're developing this vaccine, for HPV, human papillomavirus vaccine. And they, they enrolled babies into that. That is never, ever done. That protocol would have never been approved in the United States or, or Europe because there is a strong ethics committee that says, what is wrong with you? Throw them out of the, out of the, the room. You know, if you go back to them with a the, with, with the protocol like that, it got approved because we didn't know any better. 
right? We'd never done frequent clinical trials. Somebody came, Merck came and said, we want to do clinical trials in this country. Everybody was, wow, wow, we want to do Merck is coming to us to do clinical trials. Let's go to clinical trials. Point is this, right? Again, you have to build institutional knowledge. You have to build capacity. You have to build structure. Did you know that when we were developing Covaxin, we enrolled patients of Bhopal gas tragedy to that? Can you imagine that ever happening anywhere else in the world? You know what had happened at that point and the people inhaled the potassium cyanide, right? When you inhale stuff, it goes into your lungs. COVID is a respiratory disease. It also affects lungs. And these idiots in Bhopal enrolled patients who were affected with, you know, who were, you know, essentially sort of descendants of, 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 of what had happened with, with, you know, union carbide. Can you imagine that happening anywhere else in the world? And when it was reported, it was covered up. It was covered up. My point is this, right? You need institutions. You need to invest in institutions. We don't. Our focus is always about the next quarter, two quarters. Our focus is about how do I get better? Do I five-day take you know course of this antibiotic? Is it going to make me get better? And after I get better, I forget about what antibiotic I took. My focus is about you know how do I make sure that I get the best out of my the hospital care for my patients, or my father or my mother. The moment that they they discharge, I don't give a shit about you know what happens to other people in the hospital. This is our focus. We do not invest in building institutions, and if you don't invest in building institutions. This is what is going to happen. Yeah, I think it's remarkable how everything finally boils down to this this attitude of Jugard, which is, uh, I think, also a byproduct of what you mentioned about, you know, just looking at the first or the next quarter or the next two quarters, right? I mean, it is a byproduct of that attitude of, of Jugard. And, and I remember uh, talking to Dr. Ajesha, a popular economist, and, and he hates the word Jugard. So um, yeah, it's it's all about getting things right and planning long term. Uh, I think that's that's really important. And that's probably one of the things that, that we need to set right. Um, Dinesh, uh, we spoke about uh, for an hour and five minutes, and we haven't touched uh, the main uh, the main thing that uh, that no interview is uh, in com- I mean is complete without without touching on that topic, which is the Ranbaxy scandal. Uh, before we end this podcast, I would love to uh, discuss a little bit about about that. Um, you know, you were working for Ranbaxy. Um, you know, you were higher, very high up in the ranks, uh, and you know, we have uh, at least from the movies I've seen about how big corporations. Uh, do a bit of backlash and uh, you know do sneaky things um, to to whistleblowers right uh, how did you gather or muster up the courage to to do what you did uh, and which completely impacted a giant company uh, you know 500 million dollars worth of uh, penalties and and so on and so forth it's it's part of history now uh, but yeah why, how did you muster up the courage well, I mean, I, I don't know whether it was courage at that time. I think it was probably more stupidity than courage. But the fact is that it did happen that way. And the only thing I can tell you is that, that you know, you need to have proper role models, you know, in your life. It doesn't matter who you are. 
if you have people who you know are able to kind of keep you in straight and narrow and help you kind of you know focus on what is important in you know in life and look at the larger picture that gives you the kind of perspective to try and do the right thing the best you possibly can i was fortunate to have a role model like that in my life at that point in time who was able to kind of you know steer me um you know to try and and, and look at the bigger picture do the right thing and i try to do the right thing the best i possibly could so hmm yeah i've been mean, going quick back to that time uh, i just want to understand how did you come across the fact that you know or or the first signs of something that is just not right in in ranbaxy during your time like what were those first signs i you know it's i mean that the story has been told many times over but i was asked by raj to investigate what was really happening because you know he went to africa to try and talk to their drug regulator because you know he was told that he needed to do that he joined the company very very new at that point in time and um uh, the company had received concerns from the south african regulator about the quality of what was being sold in africa so when he came back he is the one who asked me he said look i need you to to look into this and get to the bottom of it because i'm barely 2 weeks old in this company and you know uh, since you have the 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 vision and the breadth of of what is really happening from a portfolio point of view why don't you just dig in and and then find out how much of this is true because the regulator is telling me that they have serious concerns about the quality of what this company is selling in africa in south africa and so that is how this whole thing got started yeah i mean yet another example of fda coming to india and in inspecting ranbaxy's uh, plant right and uh, and found out that the company wasn't uh, following good manufacturing practices just like how you mentioned um dinesh uh, fantastic conversation uh, and and before we end i just want to touch on uh, what uh, are you spending time on currently i noticed that you are shuttling between india and the us but uh, uh, how does your time distribution look like these days with with respect to work so i you know it's for, i think since 2018 i run a foundation that works in in the health area and civil liberties area in india so i spend a lot of time you know in india to try and you know see you know what what we are able to do to try and move the needle a little bit um in areas that that i'm interested in um and you know so we we fund a bunch of projects we try and 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 work in the public policy space to try and help out the best we possibly can that's what keeps me busy excellent uh dinesh again thank you so much for your time uh, i'll link all your work in the show notes so that people can go check it out uh, and help move the needle or uh, contribute in whatever way they can so thank you so much for your time i think uh, what you did with ranbaxy and everything after that is uh, is is a piece of history and thank you for doing that for the country and and for the people thank you for um having me on your show enjoy the conversation hopefully something meaningful will come out of it among your listeners but uh really enjoy the stuff thanks again